According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning, if you would, in the book of Proverbs. We are in Proverbs chapter 10 this morning. Uh, We'll get a good start on it, I think, introducing this section, which is chapters 10 through 24. We've uh, wrapped up the first portion of the book, chapters 1 through 9, the portion that I titled uh, Parental Wisdom. It has so many of the exhortations, so many of the my son, my son exhortations with respect to your father, your mother. Uh, Much of it's written in the second person. Much of it's written uh, from the heart of a father to a son in, uh, in that application. Everything changes now in chapter 10. Uh, We're still going to talk about fathers and mothers and sons and whatnot, but when we do, it's going to be in the third person. It's going to be, rather than the second person, it's going to be more generic, more, you know, that kind of a thing. So, a wise son makes a father glad, and that's spoken of in the third person. But a foolish son is a grief to his mother, see? And so whoever he is, the wise son or the foolish son and so forth. It's just, it's spoken of anonymously, it's spoken of in the third person, it's spoken of generically, and these are designed to be understood universally uh, as a principle of personal wisdom or public wisdom, and we'll talk about the difference there shortly. Had this concept been back in the first nine chapters, then it would have been spoken uh, in the second person. It would have been, my son, <laughs> if you are wise, I will be happy, and if you are a fool, your mother will be you know, speaking of your mother instead of his mother. That's the difference between the first nine chapters, which is very personal, very direct, very much in the parental wisdom mode, and now the transition into chapters 10 and following. And I want to take some time this morning to kind of walk us through that transition. Before we do that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking to bless our time of study here today. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, the blessings of your word, the privilege we have to study, the delight that it is, Father, to feast upon your truth day by day and moment by moment. I thank you, Father, that you have blessed us with such capacity. Uh, Father, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the blessings to uh, study all things, even the deep things of God. Father, there's no realm of doctrine that's beyond your capacity to bless us with here today. And I thank you for that. So bless our study, Father. I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a heading here. As you look at Proverbs 10.1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon. And you want to say, uh, no kidding, <laughs> right? Like, what have we been reading for the last nine chapters, okay? And it might be worth just taking a peek back to chapter one. How did it start? The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So we've already had a heading for the book. And it's a much longer heading in one one than it is in ten one. And it's best to think of one one as the book heading, and ten one is the subheading, all right? The first of several subheadings within the book. And we don't have a problem with subheadings. In fact, it is a feature of uh, wisdom literature in the ancient Near East to have a heading followed by subheadings. Uh, This is known and attested in uh, different aspects of wisdom literature. You may not recall, but when we introduced the book 
back in the day. <laughs> How long have we been doing this now? Almost two years. As we studied, as we introduced Proverbs, uh, we discussed an introduction. I mentioned an author named Kitchen, Kenneth Kitchen, and he gave an analysis related to the nature of wisdom literature in the ancient world. Uh, and, and it's worthwhile. It's absolutely worthwhile. Um, because I think in some respects, the mockers and the Bible skeptics and whatever, they will totally dispute that uh, the Jewish people had any capacity for, for literature in uh, 1000 B.C. They will, they will completely dispute that Solomon could have written this. That all of this, they, they came back from Babylon with all of this because clearly these, these pathetic Hebrews could never have written such a thing on their own prior to the, the Babylonian captivity. And I think the analysis by Kitchen and other authors, it's, it just makes clear how they hate the Bible so much that they will believe the most ludicrous thing imaginable. That uh, the style of wisdom literature to include headings and subheadings goes back not just to 1000 BC, not just to 2000 BC, but 2700 BC, that 27th century BC. Uh, We have examples of this in Egyptian literature, for example. And since Moses was trained in the the literature of the Egyptians, and since since Israel was birthed out of Egypt, it shouldn't be a shock to us that as they were settled as a nation that they would have uh, an exposure to this kind of literature, to this kind of idea. So we're not shocked at having the subheading the way that we have here. Anyway, chapter 1-1 is the heading to the book. Much longer, much more detailed. As we just said, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then a prologue that shows the purpose for why he's writing this. All of the benefits of studying wisdom there in Proverbs 1, verses uh, 2 through 6 or 2 through 7. Uh, As I mentioned, the first nine chapters opens the book. So we get our first subheading then at chapter 10 and verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. (laughs) Okay, Now, that's a lot shorter and so it's clear that it's a it's a uh, uh, a subheading rather than a heading. Also, it does not deny the Solomon authorship of what preceded it. All right, we have been studying Solomon's proverbs, and yet I think, and I've said this many times, that Solomon was faithfully recording what he received, what he received as a boy. He talks about when he was tender in the sight of his mother. All right, and uh, and so the and we talked about the background of David and Bathsheba and the adultery and the death of that first child and the birth of the second child, who was Solomon, and why the the birth of Solomon was so precious to David and, and Bathsheba in their recovery from their sin and from their darkness. So, uh, in the parental wisdom portion, chapters one through nine, we've got Solomon in his childhood being grounded in wisdom by David and Bathsheba. And then stepping into his own generation. And what we have in verses, in chapters 10 and following is we have then the wisdom that God blessed Solomon with. That Solomon then became a teacher, became an author, became a, uh, a writer of, uh, of wisdom. All right, so there's our next subheading. If you want to put this in, a, in an outline form, I listed much of this under point one. The Proverbs of Solomon, quote-unquote, the Proverbs of Solomon, Proverbs 10.1, forms a subheading within the overall collection. And this is the first of, um, I say four, some find a fifth, and we'll talk about that. It's possible uh, to have a fifth subheading. But as very minimum, this is the first of four. 
And the ones that are undeniable start chapters. And so uh, chapter 10 is, uh, is this one. We'll have another one in Proverbs 25. We can take a look at that. Proverbs 25, 1. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. Now, we just zipped forward in time 300 years, all right? We just zipped forward in time uh, from Solomon. How many kings are there between Solomon and Hezekiah, right? Uh, I don't know. Chris could probably recite them. But um, there's a lot of kings in between Solomon. You know, there's Rehoboam, and then there's somebody... Asa, whoever. Anyway, there's a long string of father to son, father to son. You get down to Hezekiah, all right? You get down to the, the 700s AD, or BC. Solomon, of course, is about 1000 BC, or 970 BC. So a 300 year gap. A 300 year gap. Now, isn't that fascinating? Okay? I love this. I think this is great. Uh, there, there may be some God haters and Bible skeptics that, that struggle with it. Um, the fact that Proverbs originally ended at chapter 24. I'm cool with that. I'm absolutely cool with that. And if they would have gone down to Lifeway Christian Bookstore, or whatever they had back then, and, and, and purchased a copy of Proverbs back then, all right, it would have stopped at chapter 24. That's all there would have been. See, the process of canonicity, the process in which the scriptures were written, inspired, right, and then collected, and then organized, it's, it's an important study. It's one that we, we train when we're training men for ministry. It's one that we discuss in different ways. You know, Psalms, somebody put those 150 Psalms in the order they're in now. They weren't written in that order. All right? And uh, likewise here with Proverbs. There was an initial collection that ended with, with chapter 24. And then later on, during Hezekiah's day, we're told right here, the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed and we'll have to deal with well, what's transcribed about it. And how, and how dare they take a bunch of extra stuff and shove it into the Bible? Well, wait a minute. If the Holy Spirit's doing it, because the Holy Spirit's involved in the inspiration and the compilation of the text, then I think we have a beautiful thing. So there's a subheading there. Again, it's Solomonic in the authorship, but added during the days of Hezekiah. Remember in Hezekiah's day, they found uh, the lost Torah. You know, that had been lost for a long, long time. There's a huge revival. Huge revival later in the history of, uh, of Judah. All right. Actually, Josiah was the king when they found the lost. Misspoke there. My apologies. All right. Chapter 30, another subheading. These are the undeniable ones. Chapter 30, the words of Augur, the son of Jaka, the oracle. All right. Well, who does he think he is? <laughs> okay. Well, the Holy Spirit inspired it. And this is the thing. When you talk about Old Testament canonicity, you talk about a text that was received by the covenant people, that, uh, that is Israel, that was identified. Remember, they had prophets and priests that, that uh, the, priest, the high priest particularly with the Urim and Thummim could validate all of this as scripture. But any prophet, as Augur is, uh, is uh, speaking, the son of Jacob, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and to Ukul, whoever they are, surely I am more stupid than any man. All right, so we're going to have some fun with that. Uh, the dumbest guy in the Bible. And yet Proverbs 30 was written by the dumbest guy in the Bible and uh, as many blessings 
in uh, Proverbs 30. And then the next subheading is Proverbs 31, the words of King Lemuel, whoever he was, the oracle which his mother taught him. And uh, the rabbis, the ancient Jewish tradition is that Lemuel was actually Solomon, and this is a reference to Solomon and Bathsheba. Um, there are those who dispute that, and I'm not completely convinced. Uh, in uh, I think I used to be more convinced than I am now, and probably if you read it through the Bible notebook, I went ahead and said it was Solomon and Bathsheba here, but now I'm not so sure. All right, so there's, those are the undeniable subheadings. Now, there are some that find an additional subheading inside a chapter within chapter 22. And if you want to just jot it down, uh, in chapter 22, 17. And if you turn there to Proverbs 22, 17, um, you look at it and you say, well, that doesn't seem like a subheading to me. <laughs> well, maybe it doesn't jump out at you because uh, the New American Standard Publishers, the Lockman Foundation that publishes the New American Standard Bible, they did not choose to put a gap in the paragraph there and put a little pericope heading in there or somehow set it apart. They did put verse 17 in bold to indicate a, a paragraph heading. Um, and even that's a bit of an artistic decision. But, uh, but read what the words say. All right. So if, if, in fact, chapter 22 could have or should have ended at verse 16, it makes sense. A lot of people will take the, the book of Solomon as 10.1 through 22.16. Uh, Let me say that again. Proverbs 10.1 through Proverbs 22.16. That chunk sometimes in, in commentaries is called the book of Solomon. All right. That chunk by people who put a, a section heading in uh, 2217. And the reason is, is because as it says in verse 17, include, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. And now it seems to be, and what follows seems to be different in tone from what precedes. And particularly in a first person address here, my Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips. You see, the, the, the tone does change. And some people take, and I think it's probably likely, well, I haven't made up my mind yet, um, but in verse 17 to the end of this chapter and to the end of chapter 23, that seems to be different than what precedes. And so, it, it may be a fifth subheading then. It may be a fifth subheading which comes as an exhortation to pay attention. And the words of the wise then would be wisdom literature, wisdom statements that Solomon accumulated from fellow sages, from fellow wise guys, from fellow um, kings or rulers or, or whatnot. And he collected them. He learned them from other guys. We don't know who maybe Ocker or Lemuel or whoever. And, uh, and then clearly he processed them in his own frame of reference. He cycled it through his own doctrinal thinking. The Holy Spirit inspired it because it ended up in our Bible. <laughs> okay, And so uh, whoever, wherever these came from, the uh, placement within the canon is, uh, is clear. 
So if there is a fifth subheading, that's it in 22.17. Any questions on that? All right. Subpoint A then. The emphasis, tone, and structure of 10 through 24 is quite different from 1 through 9. And so in my outline, and I'm going to stick with this, I'm going to stick with 1 through 9 as a unit, 10 through 24 as a unit. Even if I break out that fifth subheading there, I'm going to keep it as a unit. We titled uh, 1 through 9, Parental Wisdom. 10 through 24 has the heading of uh, Personal and Public Wisdom. Personal and Public Wisdom. That is, and you'll see what I mean by that as we work our way through. You'll see very quickly what I mean by that. The personal wisdom that we have as adult citizens in our community, as adult believers representing, uh, imaging God in, uh, in, our man, in our Adamic mandate. The wisdom that we apply, that's our personal wisdom as an imager of God. Whether he gives us a helpmate or not, or whether we are a helpmate or not, uh, we have personal wisdom to apply in our Adamic mandate to image God. And then we, we do so personally, we do so publicly. Because our applied wisdom ought to be, have impact in community. We, our applied wisdom ought to be not only with one another in community, but also impacting our culture, impacting our family, impacting our, our clan, our tribe, our nation. All right, and this uh, is going to be as loud as as we can preach it because I think the text screams it. The impact that we have in our in our community, in our workplace, in our family, among our associates, the benefit that we have in our culture. Now, the world would would tell you to shut up and keep that to yourself, right? Believe what you want to believe. You have a First Amendment, and they redefine the First Amendment that says, "Think what you want to think, believe what you want to believe." Uh, but just keep it to yourself. And certainly don't say anything about that in public where I might be offended. Okay? <laughs> Proverbs doesn't go there. Proverbs doesn't accept that. That wisdom shouts in the streets. Remember Lady Wisdom from, from last chapter? She was shouting on the top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet. She takes her stand beside the gates at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors. She cries out. We ought to be loud and clear with our wisdom because the world is sure loud and clear with their wisdom. In any event, the emphasis, tone, and structure is quite different. We're not going to see the kind of parental uh, exhortations. We will have some, but not of the same tone. It's not going to be personal. It's not going to be my son, your mother. It's, not gonna, it's going to be more third person. It's going to be more generic. It's going to be more universal where anyone can, can apply these things. All right, the um, short, pithy statements of truth. That's what a proverb is in English defined as. A short, pithy statement of truth. And it doesn't mean it's biblical because it's short and pithy. And it doesn't mean it's biblical because it's truth, okay? Benjamin Franklin wrote Poor Richard's Almanac. You know, there's a lot of uh, a stitch in time saves nine, that's short, that's pithy, and it's true. It's not Bible. It's not Scripture. Solomon didn't write it, and it's not in the canon. Short, pithy statements of truth are presented in no discernible order or progression. 
I confessed to you last week, this, these chapters are going to be tough. It's not my typical style. I like to outline things. I like to set diagram sentences. I like to provide summaries of chapters and work sequentially through a text. Can't do that with Proverbs 10 through 24. All right? Or 10 through 30. You can do that with 1 through 9, and you can do it with 31. <laughs> okay? Uh, so there's 10 chapters in Proverbs that, you can, uh, that I can outline fairly well. Uh, these chapters defy outlining. In fact, there are no shorter. I think, I think scholars love to outline them to prove they can do it. But no one agrees with what they've outlined. No discernible order or progression. And that's, that's for a reason. I believe that's for a reason. I believe that's so you can have this built-in redundancy. I believe, you know, we can talk about everything that we see here in, the, in these verses, you know, about a foolish son, a wise son, the contrast between wisdom and foolishness. That's going to come up again. That'll come up a dozen times, 20 times, or however many, okay, in, in chapters 10 through 24. And, and beyond that, it'll come up again in the collection that, that Hezekiah put together. All right? By the way, that's sometimes called the book of Hezekiah. You may find in a commentary, you may find the book of Hezekiah. And you can have some fun playing a Bible trivia game, you know, because you can talk about the book of Hezekiah. Some people think there is a book of Hezekiah in the Bible, right? It's somewhere in between Habakkuk and Malachi somewhere, right? One of those minor prophets. And then, and then you know, you, you tricked somebody because there is no book of Hezekiah in the Bible until you understand that chapters 25 through 29 are called the book of Hezekiah by certain scholars of the book of Proverbs. So don't be shocked if you encounter that. The book of Solomon is 10 through 24. The book of, of Hezekiah is 25 through 29. Um, so yeah, ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. That shows up in 10 too, but it shows up again later as well, repeatedly. Uh, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. If you're hardworking, you prosper. If you're a lazy slug, you suffer. Guess what? That comes up repeatedly in these chapters. And so the purpose here, it's a, it's a mishmash. It's a melting pot. It's a, it's a uh, I don't know what to call it. It's a casserole, okay? For a reason. And I think it's powerful. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. A lot of times, you know, because there are 31 chapters or in, the, in the book and a month has 30 or 31 days, a lot of times people will read one chapter a day for a month. And a month later, you've read the whole book of Proverbs. Do it again next month. Do it again next month. You can read Proverbs 12 times in a year by, just by reading one chapter a day. And you'd be very blessed to do that. Something else I think about the no discernible order it's kind of like life, you know? We learn different things at different times. You know, if you think about what you've learned in wisdom, what you've learned in any doctrine, what you've learned, you know, did you learn, did you learn divine guidance first or did you learn faith rest first? Or did you learn, uh, you know, did you learn the, the angelic conflict? Did you earn, learn... Um, you know, think about the, the doctrine of prayer. Did you learn the doctrine of confession? What order did you... And, and here's the thing. 20 of us in the room and we learned all these things in different orders. And that's fine. <laughs> because the Holy Spirit taught us what we needed when we needed it. And in, sometimes I've, I've even blown my mind when I thought, why didn't I know that before? 
When I learned something that I thought I had learned, but I didn't really learn it that well, and then when I finally learned it, I went, man, I should have known that a long time ago. Well, the Holy Spirit didn't think I needed it a long time ago, but He thinks I need it now. I better pay attention. So, I'm struggling hard, as long as I'm confessing things. Uh, I, I have been struggling with outlining these chapters, and I'm going to give up on that struggle, but I'm, I still will struggle in some respects by the, the hodgepodge approach, but hey, the Holy Spirit knows better than I do, and this is how He inspired it. That's what we're going to deal with. Um, more on that at a point. I will show you some things that we can make use of. So point C. Most of the proverb parallels in 10 through 15 are antithetical. Well, before I show you that, let's just have some fun. You got your Bibles open? Uh, are you reading New American Standard or something else? Most, most of us, New King James probably? Okay. Well, then you may have different pericope headings, but just have some fun with me. Um, at the, uh, oh, I can put it up here. Here we go. And I will cycle. Instead of cycling by verse, I'm going to cycle by uh, chapter. Okay. And so the pericope heading for chapter 10 is contrast of the righteous and the wicked. And that's a good title. I would have, I would have named it myself. And you'll see why here in a moment. Contrast of the righteous and the wicked. That's a good pericope heading. That's a good heading to give to chapter 10. I agree. All right, good heading. Uh, let's look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the contrast, the upright, and the wicked. Oh, okay. Chapter 10, chapter 11, both the same. Uh, chapter 12. Oh, contrast, the upright, and the wicked. All right. Chapter 13. Contrast the upright and the wicked. You know, I mean, conceivably, we could have just shoved this all in one great big chapter, right? <laughs> Why did they put the chapter breaks there? Chapter 14. Oh my, here we go. Contrast the upright and the wicked. Chapter 15. Are you kidding me? See, now I'm feeling better, actually, about my struggles in outlining these chapters and why do they put the division there why why do they divide the chapter there chapter 16 contrast the upright and the wicked chapter 17 contrast the upright and the wicked 18 same ah chapter 19 on life and conduct oh okay there is a grammatical shift of tone in chapter 19, but actually I think there's a grammatical shift in chapter 16. We'll talk about that also. Chapter 20 is the same as 19. 19 and 20 are the same, of life and conduct. Chapter 21, of life and conduct. Chapter 22, of life and conduct. Chapter 23, of life and conduct. 24, precepts and warnings. Which I think... I don't know, that, that heading in 2217, I would have probably put a heading there, but that's all right. And then similitudes and structure. We get different headings after that. So there's a lot of similarity in Proverbs 10 through 24, okay? And the fact that the New American Standard Bible only has two pericope headings for all those chapters. All right, well, that's kind of fun. Now I'll give you a C. 
Most of the proverb parallels are in 10 through 15. That's 10.1 through 15.33. Most of those proverb parallels are antithetical. And if these terms don't mean anything to you, I'll explain them and, and you'll see. And you'll be so overwhelmed by them, it'll be obvious. So uh, in, in the first six of these chapters, they're antithetical. In other words, A, but, B. A, but, B. All right? A, but, B. A wise son makes a father glad, but. A foolish son is a grief to his mother. So you have an A statement and a B statement, and there's a but in between, because we're contrasting. That's why it's antithetical. Most of the parallels in 16 through 22.16, that is 16.1 through 22.16, they are either synonymous or synthetic. And in either case, you don't use a but, you use an and for synonymous parallelism or synthetic parallelism. Synthetic, you could do an and. Most of them are ands. You could even do an even or an and also. And so that'll be helpful. We can, we can kind of fall into the, the, the pattern, we can kind of fall into the mode of thinking that is uh, antithetical thinking, or we can fall into the mode of thinking that is parallel, um, they're all parallel, but uh, synonymous thinking or synthetic thinking. And that'll be helpful for us in, in the poetry, in the structure. Once we get past 22.17, when we, the conclusion to the book of Solomon, 22.17 through 24.34, they are exhortative. They exhort. It's back to my wisdom. Listen to me. Your application. It's, it's exhortative. And because it is exhortative, it does echo much of what we've already seen in the parental wisdom portion of the book in the first nine chapters. It's like Solomon is carrying it forward to his children, what David and Bathsheba preached to him in the My Son exhortation. problem with Solomon, of course, is when you have a thousand wives, how many kids do you have? And how much personal exhortation can you give to any of them? How well did Solomon even know Rehoboam, the next king after him? How well did he even know him? How well did he even know his Rehoboam's mother, say, who, by the way, was not the daughter of Pharaoh, his first wife? So we have the uh, antithetical parallelism, which is a statement, but another statement. Um, the Lord will, verse 3 of Proverbs 10, 3, it says, The Lord will not allow the righteous to, sunk, to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. You can just scan down the page. Look at that, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Yeah, I mean, you can just scan down the page and you see but, 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 but in, uh, in all those verses. So that's the nature of Hebrew poetry, all right? An idea, a parallel idea. In some cases, it's, uh, it's not a dice ditch, it's not two, sometimes it's three. There could be a, an A, a B, and a C, with an A, an and, and a but, or and, 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 or but, 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 or different patterns. Mostly, though, they're just dice ditches. Mostly it's an A and a B, with either a but or an and in between. All right, secondly... Chapter 10 clearly contrasts, this is main point two now, 
The first overall point is we have a subheading and a new emphasis. So what's chapter 10 about? Point two. Chapter 10 clearly contrasts the righteous with the wicked, as do the chapters that follow. Okay? Uh, Sadiq is used 13 times in this chapter, and Rashap is used 12 times in this chapter. I didn't give you the Hebrew or the Strong's number on this slide. You'll get those shortly. 13 times and 12 times. And that's a lot for a chapter that only has 32 verses. Okay? Indeed, the New American Standard uses the same pericope heading nine straight times for chapters 10 through 18. I showed you that already. Chapter 10, 11, 12, all those chapters and the same pericope heading at the uh, beginning of the chapter. So this is what we're going to deal with. And I think it's vital. Wisdom thinks it's vital that we have so many chapters where we're contrasting the, 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 there's this life and there's that life. Choose you this day. <laughs> which life you want to pursue. And uh, in, in many respects, this is foundational to our role, not only as stewards, but as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, as regenerate people. As regenerate people, we have the privilege to walk a manner of life that the unregenerate cannot walk. And with our life, we testify to that new life we have in Christ. So the contrast between the righteous and the wicked is not just a literature contrast in the text. It is us living our lives in contrast to the world around us, to this lost and dying world. I think it's also fundamental because religion puts it up, flips it on its head. Religion makes your behavior what then causes you to earn and deserve something. In other words, you, you, you shape your behavior, you try to do righteous things so that you can become saved or, or earn something or please your God or, or whatever sort of thing. You see how that flips it on its head? Puts the cart before the horse? We don't become Christians because of the good things we do. We walk in righteousness because that's what we are in Christ. Because we are saved. Our walk is a reflection and an expression of that salvation. And so learning the difference between righteousness and the wicked is vital so that we don't you know, misapply anything, but it's not, we're not living this life to deserve anything because we don't deserve a thing. It's all in grace. All right. It's not just my observation it's pretty clear <laughs> here's your 31 chapters of proverbs left to right all right and here is your use of tzaddik also tzedek and tzedakah cognate forms of tzaddik together with rashat and rashat and ridge rishka there's a lot of cognate forms but anyway this is your this is your righteousness and wickedness contrast in proverbs and look where it explodes chapter 10 <laughs> okay uh, chapter one is is minimal one use chapter two and three have three uses chapter four has one chapter five drops back down to one again chapter uh, proverbs eight. Oh, i removed all the zero items that's why we have chapter one two three four five eight and nine 
So that means there's zero in uh, six or seven, right? But then you get to Proverbs 10 and the chart explodes. You're up to 27 uses, right? I think that adds up right. Anyway, this is the section. And that grabs you. There's another, it kind of dims down again in 19 and 20 and then it jacks up again in 21. I'm not sure why 21 is such a emphasis there, but we should learn by the time we get there. <laughs> All right. So that's what we're dealing with here in chapter 10. What are the terms? Why do we pay attention to them? Well, we studied them already in chapter 1. I don't want to take a ton of time on this. I don't mind doing a, a single Wednesday on righteousness and wickedness. So we'll see uh, how far we get today and then what kind of time we'll take with it next week. When you're talking about righteousness, you're talking about the Tzedek family. The Tzedek family. T-S, that's a T sound, right? Tz, which we never start an English word with T unless it's the tsetse fly or something, right? I mean, there's almost nothing in English that starts with a T-S. But Tzedek, T-S-E-D-E-Q, Tzedek. And um, that's a masculine noun that means righteousness. There's also Tzedekah, a feminine noun that means righteousness. Uh, they're given different Strong's numbers. 6664 is uh, Tzedek with 119 uses. 6666, that sounds dangerous, that's... Uh, a uh, feminine noun, Strong's number, 6666, with 157 uses. Two different nouns for righteousness. You think the Bible has a lot to say about righteousness? <laughs> it does. I mean, it is one of the dominant themes. The righteousness of God, the unrighteousness of man. How do we obtain the righteousness of God? And we're not even, we're not even in the New Testament. These are just Hebrew expressions. You know, this, we're, not, we're not even going to get into the, to the Greek on this or to the Pauline development or anything with respect to justification by faith or all the uh, church age theology that we could teach in the New Testament. This is 300 plus uses of just tzedek and tzedekah from the Hebrew and the Old Testament. We have the adjective of tzaddik, T-S-A-D-D, double the D, T-S-A-D-D-I-Y-Q, tzaddik. Number 6662, that has another 200 uses. So, in the process of studying these terms, in the process of studying tzedek, tzedekah, tzedek, you're going to get everything that the Old Testament gives you with respect to righteousness. If you need help with the vocabulary, I recommend uh, just read up on Melchizedek sometime, right? And even the book of Hebrews makes the point that Melchizedek is a king of righteousness because Melech means king and Sedek means righteousness. And so his name is king of righteousness. But he's also the king of Salem. That means he's the king of peace. Oh, how is it that a king of righteousness can be a king of peace? And you go, oh, there must be a lot of doctrine here as this guy's a type of Christ. <laughs> the king of righteousness, king of peace. Oh, and Jesus is appointed a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Man, there's a lot of doctrine in this study in there. <laughs> anyway, Melchizedek's one of my favorite, favorite characters in all the Bible. Now, so 119 plus 157 plus 206 
We're looking at basically 500 places in the Old Testament to get a handle on righteousness. Okay, And so I gave you just a smattering of them there on the slide. You'll note, though, and, and I, I should have done this, um, done the, the, the similar chart to the one I did in Proverbs. Should have done that throughout the Old Testament. And you'll note there's not as much. You would think there'd be more in the Torah. You would think there'd be a whole lot to say about righteousness in the Torah. Surprisingly enough, the majority of the uses of, of righteousness are not in the Torah. They're in Psalms. They're in Proverbs. They're in Isaiah. Amazingly enough. So 135 uses in the Psalms, 93 uses in Proverbs, 75 uses in Isaiah. So between Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah, you've got the bulk of your righteousness studies in the Old Testament. Now, there are some in the Torah, of course, including Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as, as what? Righteousness, tzedakah. Okay, or maybe tzedek, I think it's tzedakah there. That's Genesis 15, 6. And we learn right off the bat that the, the granting of, of righteousness, the reckoning of righteousness is provided from God to man and the basis of which is faith. Abraham believed God it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You cannot earn righteousness. You, you cannot do good things and earn your own righteousness because your righteousness, all that adds up to filthy rags. God wants no part of it. In Genesis 18, it's interesting because righteousness and versus wickedness was something that Abraham really wrestled with. And he prayed about it and he struggled with. And it bothered him that God was the kind of God that would destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so when you read through those verses in Psalm in Genesis 18, verses 19 through 28, you find in Abraham's prayer life, they, the, the Lord's going to go down there and destroy Sodom. And Abraham's nephew is living in Sodom along with his nephew's wife and his grandnieces and nephews and other family members. The, the, the heritage of, of Abraham was connected to Lot and Lot and Lot's family were going to get destroyed if they were still in Sodom when Sodom falls. And so in Abraham's prayer life, much of his prayers are centered on the righteousness of God. And will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And we're familiar with that prayer as he bargains the Lord down from 50 to 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And there weren't even 10 righteous in Sodom. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, I forget this one. Verse 15 and then four uses in verse 36. Four uses in the same verse. Leviticus 19. Verse 15 says, you shall, do, you shall do no injustice in judgment. And so there's a concept of, not only is there a concept of justice, there's a concept of injustice. And uh, it's not just simply a passive omission of justice, it is an active uh, activity of injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor and deter, defer to the great. You are to judge your neighbor fairly or righteously. And so we realize that, that righteousness is married to, they're like Siamese twins, 
they are they're they're intricately bound the concepts of righteousness and justice justice is executed but the standard of justice being executed has to be the standard of righteousness if it's not then your justice is perverted and it's actually unjust if it's not according to the standard of righteousness justice will always be according to the standard of righteousness in god's book otherwise it's unjust or it's injustice in a standard of unrighteousness those terms are linked so and i I agree i think uh, pastor theme was very correct when he defined the holiness of god he said the holiness of god holiness and he said was intransitive but it was holiness is made up of the transitive attributes of righteousness and justice and i think that's a good way to think about it okay you got to search through the scriptures and compile a lot of things to to define that but i think he was right he wasn't the first one to put that together either the holiness of god is defined as his righteousness and his justice all right it's like the love attribute is mercy and goodness right and the veracity is his uh no no now i'm getting it all mixed up man it's been a long time since i saw those charts still in leviticus 19 look down at verse 36 you shall have just balances. And, and these terms for just are the uh, tzedek, or the tzedek, I'm sorry, tzedek. You shall have uh, tzedek balances. You know, you could be, uh, uh, you know, the grocery store and you tweak your scale so that you're selling uh, uh, half a pound of bananas but it comes across as a pound so you uh you know you're gonna you're ripping them off is what you're doing they're not buying a pound of of bananas they're buying half a pound of bananas but you tweaked your scale you shall not you shall have tzaddik balances tzaddik weights a tzaddik effa and a and a tzaddik hin different uh measurements there for i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt the reason why you got to have all these things tzaddik in your life is because you serve the tzaddik uh lord god he is righteous he is just he is fair and the covenant nation of israel had to be a reflection of that that was their that was their role so four times there uh deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4 verse 5 verse 6 a good trio of verses there on righteousness Deuteronomy chapter 9. I'm just trying to stimulate your thinking this morning on righteousness. Well, yeah, I'm not giving you a comprehensive doctrine. We're going to have tons of this stuff coming up in these chapters. The contrast of the righteous with the wicked. So it's good to have in our thinking what uh, Tzedakah is all about throughout the the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. Verse 4 says, um, let's see how the chapter starts here. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven. All right? So this is the day they're getting ready to to step across and begin the conquest. It's a pretty significant day, wouldn't you think? (laughs) All right? Greater and mightier than you. That's critical if you ever want to study the population of Israel and the, uh, the census figures from Numbers and why we, we have to do something with those numbers. 
Because if, if Israel truly had an army of 600,000 standing troops, plus women and children and old people and whatever, if you believe three million people walked through the Red Sea, um, then you've got to answer a lot of other questions. If you believe that Joshua was the commander-in-chief of a, of a standing army of 600,000 soldiers, explain to me why when 36 of them die one night, he's all broken up over the, the tragic defeat. Okay? A loss of 36 is ridiculous if you have 600,000. We'll talk about Well, we probably won't, actually. This is some of the training we're doing with, with Dan and Lewis and the men on Wednesday mornings. But there are, there are numerical manuscript issues with the Hebrew manuscript of, of Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers chapter 26. My belief is that they had an army of 6,000, and it wasn't 3 million people that walked through the Red Sea. It was about 70,000, 72,000 people that walked through the Red Sea. About 72,000 that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Anyway, and the point being... Greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven. And and elsewhere in in Deuteronomy, it says there were seven of them. Each of them is greater and mightier than you. And so now I'm trying to imagine these seven, you know, the Hittites, Perizzites, uh, all the ites that they destroyed, seven of them. And if the smallest of them had 600,000 soldiers... That's, that, that boggles the mind. In fact, it can't be substantiated archaeologically. Anyway, um, what am I doing? I'm reading Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. All right, so you, yes, you're going to attack these guys. They're bigger than you. They're mightier than you, but God is on your side, so who cares? Okay? Know, therefore, today that it is the Lord your God, it is Yahweh, your Elohim, who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as Yahweh has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart when Yahweh, your Elohim, has driven them out before you. Don't say, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. All right? Don't ever say that. Anytime a prayer is answered, anytime you're forgiven of your sins, anytime it's not your righteousness, it's His faithfulness. It's His righteousness. It is because of the wicked, or you see, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. You are the instrument in His hand as He is destroying the iniquity. Remember the iniquity of the Amorite, which was not yet complete. He delayed in his mercy and his long-suffering. Verse 5, it is not for your your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Know then, verse 6, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. (laughs) You don't deserve this. All right? Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Remember, this is the day the conquest begins. So the people here that are alive were under 20 when they crossed through the Red Sea. Or maybe they weren't even born yet when they crossed through the Red Sea. Everybody over 20, other than Caleb and Joshua, everybody over 20 is dead. 
say, Moses is fixing to die. All right. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. So we're learning there's a difference between your righteousness and God's righteousness, and don't presume that your righteousness has earned or deserved anything. Your righteousness is a gift from Him. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes. They shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Again, we notice the link between justice and righteousness. We also notice the locality. It is local whenever possible. It is by their tribes, and even within their tribes, it's going to be by their clans, and even within their clans, it's going to be by their families. It will be the elders at the gate, at the city gate, in the, in the families and clans that will then administer righteousness and justice. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now these principles are handed down in Torah with a thou shall and thou shalt not. And the the principles are, the commands are given in Torah. But the full exposition of how you can have that righteousness, that wisdom, that comes in Psalms and Proverbs. All right? And amazingly in Isaiah. All the uses of, of tzaddik that we have in Psalms and Proverbs gives you the practical how to have this kind of righteousness the Torah expects you to have. If that makes any sense. The Lord, by the way, spoke, uh, cited this, and when he quoted this in John seven twenty four to judge with righteous judgment. So there's an echo of that Deuteronomy passage in John seven twenty four. 2 Samuel 8.15. You have all of David's triumphs here in the first part of the chapter. And uh, the various victories, the various garrisons, the various uh, tributes that he receives and all of this. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. This is the nature of it. This is why he was the best of all the kings of Judah. Everyone after him was judged according to his standard. And Joab, the son of Zerah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. Zadok, great hero, Zadok. Son of Ahutub and Ahimelech, the sons of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Herathites and the Pelathites. Mighty man of valor was he. I love Ben Benaiah. That was a great guy. And David's sons were chief ministers. That's important. David's sons were chief ministers. And that's, of course, how does a young prince learn how to become king? Well, he's going to serve in a government capacity as he's as his dad is still alive, he's going to learn different capacities of rulership, different capacities for wisdom. His sons were chief ministers. I think, uh, now, if we have a pattern here, how does this then have a fulfillment in the millennium? Because Jesus will be 
on the throne of David. Jesus will be the king in the millennium. And he's not going to be procreating with a human woman or producing uh, physical descendants. So what's the, uh, the fulfillment of this? It's a beautiful concept, really. The chief ministers of Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom are going to be the resurrected former kings. Of, it's going to be David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Asa and Jehoshaphat and all the good kings, Hezekiah. Isn't that going to be fun? Anyway, Ezekiel details a little bit of that when it talks about David, your prince, David, the king and David, the prince in the same chapter. All right. Just about out of time. Uh, that's, how about first Kings 10, nine? This just gives you the sample for uh, Righteousness. Queen of Sheba comes for a visit because of his wisdom, because of Solomon's wisdom. And she just thinks it's amazing. She said to the king in verse 6, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. See, faith isn't just belief in nothing. You check out the evidence. And so she comes and she sees it herself. And behold, the half was not told to me. A lot of hymns adapt that for their, the half has never been told. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. When the righteous reign, the people rejoice, right? When the wicked wicked reign, what's the consequence? It's miserable. Blessed be Yahweh, your Elohim. See, she's a Gentile dog. She knows it. Blessed be Yahweh, your Elohim. I bet she gets saved. She's a believer and and brings truth to Ethiopia. It's an amazing thing. Um, Blessed be Yahweh, your Elohim, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Mishpat and Tzedakah. That link between justice and righteousness. All right. So, what do you pray for when you pray for presidential elections or govern? You know, the governor, the mayor, the city council, whatever you. What are you praying for? What are you voting for? What are you considering in uh, those that are placed in positions of authority over us? You see how righteousness is according to God's word, the wisdom that He gives us to reign in righteousness. It's not something that you keep to yourself. It's something that you make use of in public. It is personal and public wisdom that we're studying in chapters 10 through 24. Next week we'll uh, detail the issues of wickedness. And then having contrasted righteousness with wickedness, we'll then be ready to uh, examine some things as it pertains to the threshold between parental wisdom and personal public wisdom. That generational accountability. What happens then when you finish your ninth chapter and you're ready to leave home? Now you're under chapter 10 and following. (laughs) Okay? And what happens in life when 
You're no longer under the umbrella of father and mother and the wisdom that they are bestowing upon you. See, and then you step into your own generation. Now you stand before the Lord in the personal and public wisdom of chapters 10 through 24. So we'll discuss the nature of generational accountability next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the book of Proverbs. And Father, I rejoice over the truth that is so applicable. It's independent of stewardships. It's not limited to the theocracy of Israel in the Old Testament. We have timeless principles of wisdom because they reflect your eternal, unchanging character. And they're just as valid and applicable today, Father, for our personal application, for our corporate application, for our public application. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom and discernment to uh, to apply the word of god to our experience and i thank you in jesus christ's name amen